Go ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible with you this morning, the primary text we'll be in this morning is in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 12, 2. But we'll, we'll pick up a running start. If you're just joining with us uh, for the first time this Sunday, last Sunday I began a series called Gratitude, Worship, and Joy. And the premise is basically that with the gratitude towards what Christ has accomplished produces in us a worship that is Gratitude-oriented and a worship that is honoring to the Lord and satisfying to us, producing in us a joy that is lasting. We began last week by asking the question, well, overall, what is God's will for me? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 through 18, as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the people of Thessalonica, he gives this encouragement saying, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, without stopping. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is God's will? To rejoice always, to remember your source of joy always, to have lasting joy, to be prayerfully oriented, mindful of God's sovereign care and control over all things and his authority over all things and in all things and through all things and for all things so that we are mindfully oriented towards his power and care and mindfulness, mindfulness of us. As we live in that direction, we're able to give thanks in all circumstances, after all, this is God's will in Christ Jesus. This little passage, for those who follow Jesus, will either be an encouragement or a discouragement, depending on where you sit today. One of the observations I shared last week is that as much joy as Christians should have, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of doubt, there's a lot of suspicion, and, and I'm saying as people, that's their view towards the Lord that way. And so last week we, we explored what is it that believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, have to be grateful for. And we studied from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, and, and we saw a few things. We saw that as followers of Jesus, that we are loved by Jesus, that we are known by Jesus, that we are forgiven because of Jesus, that we are accepted through Jesus, and we are safe in Jesus. We are saved because of Jesus. That fearing no other person or created being because the one who created us is the only one who has power to destroy our souls in hell. And so I was sitting at lunch with Stephanie last week and our girls, and she was saying, hey, how'd you feel like it went? I was like, I was encouraged to be up preaching again. And she said, awesome, yeah, it was really helpful, but what does that look like practically? Well, as preachers, we like to preach these big ideas and hope it kind of trickles down and it, and it bears uh, you know, fruit in your souls. But I understood her question. And so at the very end, I made these statements. I took the we statements into I statements, and I said very simply, gratitude should be viewed as a gauge in your soul, like a gauge on your dashboard. For those of you not old enough to drive yet, there's these different dials on the dashboard, and gratitude can be viewed as a fuel gauge, if you will, and I, analogies always fall down, but if you will, it's kind of where am I at on the gratitude thing, because the orientation and direction of your worship will largely be impacted by the extent to which you are grateful. 
And while I know as Americans we have a lot to be grateful for, as Texans we have even more to be grateful for. Amen, yeehaw. <laughs> Don't really pull them out, guys and ladies. All right. Carry them if you got them here in Texas, right? But as followers of Jesus, in Jesus, we have a lot we can be thankful for. And so I told Stephanie, I said, what might your life look like if every morning you wrote down an index card and you said in the mirror, even if you're not feeling it, I am loved by Jesus, I am known by Jesus, I am forgiven because, only because of the work of Jesus, not because I've earned it or worked for it or paid enough back. I am accepted through Jesus by the Father in heaven, and I am safe in Jesus. What if you actually verbalize those truths every morning? Not superstition, not to earn anything, but to begin believing what is true. I'm loved by Jesus. Yeah, but I'm not very lovable right now. It doesn't matter. You're loved by Jesus. I'm known by Jesus. Well, he wouldn't love me if he actually knew me. No, he knows. And he still proactively and consequently chooses to love you. I am forgiven because of Jesus, meaning he's not holding my sin against me any longer. He, he wants different. He wants better. He wants more for me. Is he offended by sin? Yes. Why? Because we're saying something created is better than the creator. And that's a misalignment on our behalf. But you're forgiven. Should we go on sinning so that grace might abound all the more? In very emphatic, colorful words, in Romans 6, he says, Oh, heck no. I churched it up. Oh, heck no. For we have died to sin, so why should we live it any longer? Christians are so busy bargaining on what we can get away with that we're missing out on the actual benefit we have in being connected to the creator of the universe. And so we're asking wrong questions. But if we start believing, God, I don't feel today, but your word says I'm forgiven by Jesus because of Jesus. And because I'm forgiven, I'm acceptable to you because of Jesus. I'm accepted because of Jesus. And because I'm accepted by Jesus and adopted in as a son or a daughter, I am therefore safe, eternally safe in Jesus. How might that shape and change your life a bit? But that's not all. I would argue that gratitude is a primary motivation for God-honoring, God-centered worship, not only gathering on Sunday for worship, but on a day-to-day -day basis. And as we continue this journey over the next two weeks following this, we're going to explore how worship produces this joy, and then how this joy then consequentially pours out into a life-altering, impactful life of mission together and individually. The main point we're going to explore today is this, that gratitude fuels Christ-centered worship. And now you might be saying, gratitude, what if I don't feel great, grateful? Uh, just to be clear, this gratitude isn't an emotion. It's a position. 
It's, it's, a, it's a direction. We're, we're directing some direction. So if we know that we're misdirected or not very grateful or focusing on all the things we don't have or what God hasn't done for us, that should be an invitation to realignment. God, I come to you. I don't feel grateful today. I don't feel happy for what you have. I know that you love me, but that doesn't seem to be making a difference in my checking account or with my marriage or with my children or with or that. I don't feel grateful. Guess what? That's worship. By acknowledging to God that you're not where you're, you should be is actually honoring to God. He's not waiting for an excuse to spank you. He's looking for an opportunity to love you and to care for you and to rescue you and for you to acknowledge what is actually true. And so many times I ask Christians, what do you have to be grateful for? Oh, I got a nice house. I live in America. I'm Texan, blah, blah, blah. You know, Texan, I've got a gun to prove it. Like, whatever, right? They, they have their things. But ultimately, it's, I am loved by Jesus. As a believer, that, that's what we can take to the eternal bank. If the stock market's high, awesome. If the stock market's, market's low and you've shorted some accounts, good for you, whatever. But that, our joy shouldn't be contingent upon where these things are, and our worship shouldn't be only when we're feeling good and like it. In fact, we were created to worship. We were made to worship. Sin happens when we redirect our worship in other directions, to other things and other people. We are worshipers. This last week, I got to go watch my cousin, Dylan Cease, yes, I'm name-dropping, pitch for the White Sox. It was very tearing me up on the inside because he's pitching against our home team, the Astros. So I try to be positive about it and say it was a win-win opportunity. If he did well, yay for the family. If he did poorly, yay for the home team. Arguably, he didn't have his best game, good for the Astros. But it was an honor and a joy to go watch him pitch and throw. It was an honor to see and go, but let me tell you something. If there wasn't worship happening at that place, I don't know what is. People dressed to the nines, painted, screaming, all this kind of like bought in, willing to die for defending. And my apathy, I'm sure, was offensive to everybody. I'm not a huge sports guy. Like, I don't have enough energy to give myself to something like that. It like, some of you all, they're like, man, my fantasy sports, you're like, all in. I need a nap after I see that. But giving your attention, your affection, and your allegiance to something, and, and here's the challenge, is that most followers of Jesus have believed that there is a God and that Jesus sounds like a good plan to not have to go to hell, and they leave their beginning faith kind of right there, and they say, well, childlike faith. Yes, childlike faith means a vulnerable dependency upon a father-like figure. It doesn't mean childish. The challenge, though, is the church is permitted for too long childish-like faith. That is me, 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 organ, uh, oriented, and it's all about the toddler faith where we have temper tantrums when God doesn't do things our way, or we are mad at God when God doesn't permit something we want. And the challenge is, as we get older, we think that, that chronological aging naturally means spiritual uh, maturity, which is not the, not the case. And the only way we're really going to mature spiritually is through gratitude-induced worship and exploration and curiosity of who God is and getting to know God. And so in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, 
The Apostle Paul is coming to a summation of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Romans is one of the most profound and theologically, doctrinally rich books that we have in the New Testament talking about the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of humanity, the nature of salvation. And he gets to this place where he just, in his writing, goes to this place of worship in exalting who God is. And he begins this way in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The first thing we see here is that gratitude for who God is and all that he has done fuels our worship. Gratitude for the person of God and the applied works of God is a fuel towards our worship. You see Paul here coming to this place of saying, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is knowing what to think, the right thing, thinking the right things, having the right answers. Wisdom is rightly knowing when to use what it is that you know. Have you ever met a smart theological person who lacked wisdom? They had zeal, passion, but no wisdom, and they would verbally vomit all these theological facts on you when you ask them about how their coffee tastes, and they argue why there should be a sixth letter in tulip. For those of you who don't know, that's a theological thing. They have the right answers, but they don't know when to use it or how to use it. What Paul's saying here is the depth and the riches, we understand deep. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, several of you have been to the Grand Canyon. Some of you have been to the place in Texas that's the second largest hole in the ground. But I've flown over the Grand Canyon. I haven't been yet, but from what I can see, it's very deep. Right? So what we see about the nature of God's an abundance of God's wisdom and knowledge are, it's a lot. It's deep and abundant, rich. His ability to use what he knows and the fact that he knows all things. So a couple of things we can see here is that, that God is a God who can be trusted. He knows what he's talking about and he knows when to use it appropriately. And the foundation of that trust understanding that he is holding all things together, alleviates us from trying to know everything that God knows. That doesn't mean that God has not made himself known. God has made himself known throughout all creation. God has made himself known through his son Jesus. God has made himself known through the prophets. God has and is making himself known through his word. God is a knowable God so that as we grow in our faith in Jesus, as we come to him to know him more and to enjoy him more because of the fact that we are acceptable, we are forgiven, we are loved, we are known, we are safe, we then have opportunity and empowered by the Holy Spirit to engage God and to know God and relate with God so that as life continues to come our way, which it has and will continue to do, there are roots that go down deep into the nature and character of God. 
that we can still say God is good even when things in our lives are not. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. One of the most liberating things I found as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a business owner, as a pastor, is to say, I don't know. That doesn't mean that we leave our responsibility there. If it can be known, then we should assist in finding out. But one good thing that we have from the Lord is we are not responsible to give every answer to every question about who he is because some of those answers are above our pay grade. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Completely. Who has been his counselor? No one. I know some people that we see on TV believe that God's telling them firsthand and then they're screaming back to God what they think he should do. God is not your butler. He is not a sonic answering thing. He's not your spiritual Roomba that follows around after you and cleans up your mess. He's God. God is God and we are not and for that we should give thanks. If you have nothing else to be grateful for today, thank God you're not God we would be in a world of hurt. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? No one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Guess what? No one. Oh God, I did great today. I did my quiet time every day this week. Prayed a prayer. Gave a little extra over 10% this week. I don't think the Lord's saying... You know it, you're right, I owe you one. But we believe that way and we act that way. And we're offended when life doesn't go our way. I did, after I did all this for you, he points back to the cross. And he said, on the days you weren't 100%, I did that for you. And even now in your pride for telling me all you did for me, I did that for you. When you're so proud of how good you're doing for the Lord, that's pride. Ah. We don't live a performance-based faith. We live one that's founded in gratitude of our own spiritual bankruptcy and the profound rescue that we've been given in Christ. That even if everything in our life is not going our way, we can still, in humility, say, God, I know I should feel grateful, but I don't. It is possible to be grateful and not feel grateful. But I would say it's very hard to feel grateful if you aren't. So what do we have to be grateful for? What does that gratitude produce? I, I remember talking to a mentor of mine who was saved out of some hard things, and he said, God saved me, and then I've committed to live the rest of my life as a thank you. His life of worship was in response to all that had been taken off of him and placed upon him as a child of God. And so his position was one of gratitude. His orientation was one of gratitude. The Apostle Paul goes on to say and says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
To him be the glory. To him be reflective of who he is. He is our only hope. The reality is we can be grateful for a lot of circumstantial things, but when those things don't perform the way they ought to, our gratitude goes to the dumps. But if we are inherently grateful for the fact that even if this life, not if, even when this life does end, as followers of Jesus, that isn't the end of the story. That even when our children disobey, there's still hope in the risen glory of Christ. Even when our marriage is in shambles, that doesn't have to be the final say. That's the hope as we start understanding who we are in Christ individually and as his people. That as we grow in our gratitude for God, and it's, it becomes more in depth, the gratitude becomes deeper, as we grow in our knowledge of who he is and all that he has done. If our study of theology is merely so that we can be right in our arguments with other people, then we're missing the relationship altogether. The study of theology, the study of the Bible is meant so that we can know God and be better equipped to know God, to love God, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. For worship founded in gratitude, is a declaration both together and individually of who God is and a celebration of all that God has accomplished. Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The second thing we see in this passage is that Christ-centered worship transforms our lives. Our lives are different because our minds become different because we're conformed, transformed more and more to the likeness of Christ doesn't mean that we become so weird that we can't relate to people outside of the, the faith. It means that we become so anchored in the reality of our eternal reality that we're not tossed to and fro by the whims of culture around us, that we can remain steady, that we can be anchored in hope. So be, in view of the previous 11 chapters, he appeals to the church in Rome and to us as followers of, of Jesus to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Sounds like an oxymoron. To give yourself over, your life in your living is no longer your own. There was a transaction that had to occur so that we would be able to relate with God again. The, re the transaction that took place was Christ on the cross as our substitute. His death, his resurrection, so that we might die to sin and be alive to him. In that transaction, we're then invited and enabled and empowered to relate with God, to have meaningful relationship with God. Our life is worship. The orientation, the direction of our life is worship. The way we think and the way we interact and whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. That's from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Worship is not merely a gathering of people. Worship is a position and posture of our life. You may have heard me say before that temptation in and of itself is an invitation. 
Temptation is an invitation to worship. You'll either choose to worship the Lord by obeying what his word has taught, or you'll worship the enemy in your own flesh by leaning into the sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. Temptation is an invitation. I will either choose to obey the Lord, or I will choose not to obey the Lord. And in that moment, we're choosing to believe where our source of joy will ultimately be found. But do not be conformed to this world. What's sad to me is it seems that, that Christians, followers of Jesus, and I, I fall into this temptation frequently, allow our thinking and our belief and our hope in the future, our eschatology, our future thinking, we allow it to be so shaped by sound bites and newsreels that we become unsettled in our soul about the future of our existence based upon what we're hearing or seeing, regardless of what side of the aisle you find yourself on. We're so polarized because of our desperation for something constant and transforming that we allow the news or the opinions of those around us to really inform us. We would never say this, but that becomes our new doctrinal lens. We form our belief by God based on our view of politics and economics and culture and community and lifestyles and everything else, rather than the lens by which we view all things through our faith in the Lord, by the view of the Word of God. And so when I visit with believers who are despairing over the state of our nation, the state of the world, the state of our town, the state of the economy, all those different things, what I'm noticing is that there's a, a, an accompanying paralysis that comes along with it that prevents a pursuit of a daily relationship with God, that prevents a daily pursuit of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. that paralyzes us from caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Believing that our worry and our absorption of all these different things that by and large, individually, there's not much we can impact, is then paralyzing us from engaging in a worship that's life-giving in such a way that's transformative in our souls. that we're able to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, the more we push, the more we try to cry for change on Facebook, the worse things are getting. If we committed that energy and that focus and that direction toward prayer and a lifestyle of worship and obedience to God's word, what might be different? The consequence of intentional worship fueled by gratitude to the Lord is a transforming and a renewing, a changed mind that as we think differently and view things through the lens of the gospel, that through testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You're able to be transformed and be changed, be different, not just behavior modification, but by the way you view all things, you're able to be different. The last passage we'll be in this morning is Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. 
It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The last thing we'll talk about this morning is this, is that Christ-centered worship transforms and it shapes our community. The way we interact as a church, the way we engage on Sundays. Is there something supernaturally happening with the gathering of God's people, proclaiming the goodness and excellencies of God so that people who walk into our place of worship who do not yet know Jesus notice that there's something unique and different happening? And I'm not saying just because we're singing loud or because we're raising our hands, but because we're people who have been daily orienting our lives as worshipers of Jesus in the way that we approach our relationships, in the way that we approach our work, in the way that we approach our study of God's word, in the way that we encourage our family, in the way that we repent and apologize? Is there such a culmination of this day-to-day living, seeking to walk with Jesus, that when God's people gather together to declare his excellencies, to hear from his word, to pray for one another, that there's something uniquely different going on in our midst that brings about transformation and encouragement in our souls and that overflows into the community around us? So that when we're sent on mission in our community and sent on mission in the state and in the nation and around the world, we are doing so with integrity and authenticity because our worship is overflowing. The transformation is happening. We're no longer being conformed to the concerns of conservative or liberal or neutral media. No such thing. But... We're not conforming to those patterns, allowing our lives to be oriented that way. We're being informed, but what's transforming us is through the worship of the Lord on a daily basis and engaging Him. And as we come together with a spirit of gratitude, where it says the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts, to which indeed we are called as His body with thanksgiving, that the Word of God is dwelling in us richly, as we teach and as we encourage and as we do so begging God for wisdom and in our singing and in our hymns and our spiritual songs, we do so gratefully from our hearts so that we are a community of believers that when our hearts are not able to sing praise because our life is hard and things are sad or things are tough, we don't isolate and alienate ourselves, but rather we press in and say, I can't today, brothers and sisters. We come alongside and carry you together as God's people, believing the truths of God's word, worshiping together, and acknowledging that every day is not a day that we actually feel grateful, but we can be. That every day we may not feel joyful, but we know that we can be. It's it's always funny to me that when, when people figure out that I have a pastoral background, their language immediately cleans up and like they, they turn, they turn the, all the filters on. And they're so fake. Your problem isn't your language. Your problem's your heart. Your ultimate problem isn't that you drink a 12-pack a day. Your problem is your heart is not satisfied in Christ. And you form some bad habits. 
But we, we don't act as a body of believers who worship an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, transforming Savior that can actually handle it better than we can. That we can come in together and say, I'm not sure all the things we ought to do. There are experts we can find, but let's pray. Let's walk with you. Let's address the loneliness that's going on. And we might agree with you, like, yeah, that is a train wreck. Maybe stop it. But do so in love and with patience and with grace. And saying, like, hey, we were never meant to do it alone. I don't know about those of you who are married, but there's been plenty of times in my marriage where I'm the strong one and Steph is not doing so hot. But oftentimes I'm the train wreck and she's pretty constant. And God is merciful in that. But what happens if both of you are struggling? Where do you look to then? What do you look to then? God's people who are being conform- not being conformed to the world and not going to be like Job's buddies who throw a bunch of bad advice at you, but who are being transformed by the renewing of their mind that, that don't just throw trite statements at you. Oh, well, God's sovereign. Well, I know that, buddy. But says, I'm so sorry. That seems so hard. But we can say with confidence, it will be okay. A life of worship, a community of worship has consequence and transformation. Worship that is honoring to the Lord, Christ-centered worship, fueled by gratitude, transforms and shames our community because we are being shaped and transformed. We have the privilege as God's people when we don't feel grateful or we don't feel like we have anything to be grateful for to admit that. My gratitude tank is empty, Lord. I don't feel it. But if we start, I guarantee if you start saying, I'm loved by Jesus, I'm known by Jesus, I'm forgiven because of Jesus, I'm accepted through Jesus, I'm safe in Jesus, and you start reading about what all that cost and what all that means and how long that's been going on, and as those roots go deeper into that, then all of a sudden our temptation and our sin, our depression and our shame, our addictions, whatever it is that's ailing us, becomes less life-giving and we acknowledge it as life-taking, and we reorient back towards the source of life. That's the biblical definition of repentance. So if you're here this morning, and you don't feel that grateful, and you are a follower of Jesus, you can know that you are loved by Jesus, you're known by Jesus, you are forgiven because of Jesus, you're accepted through Jesus, and you're in safe in him wherever you find yourself this morning. And if you're here this morning and don't yet know Jesus, haven't trusted in Jesus, have been wounded by the people of Jesus, I want you to know this, that you can trust Jesus. You can believe that he will love you and accept you and forgive you and know you and save you by crying out to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Lord, there's so much to be said and can be said about worship, but ultimately, Lord, that, that you've created us to worship, that sin misdirects and robs us of the joy of our worship, that through Jesus, that we are loved and known and forgiven and accepted and safe, and through gratitude, because of all that's been accomplished, we are able to come and gather as your people to worship, but daily live oriented as people who are living our lives as a thank you to you.
Father, we do ask that you would comfort those who are followers of Jesus but are not currently feeling grateful, oh Lord, that they would admit that. They would begin with the faith of a mustard seed, small, small faith, begin to say those true things and live those true things and know those true things. And Father, if they honestly cannot, then perhaps they don't know that. So that you would reveal that to them and they would place their hope and trust and soul in the hands of Jesus. Father, I do pray for those who do not yet know you, God, in your kindness, I pray that you would show yourself to them and that they would turn from sin and trust Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are struggling forward, who have experienced the transformation of their mind. We're all tempted, Lord, to be conformed to the surroundings around us, to the ways of this world. It's, it's, it's a constant temptation. But Father, I pray as a community of believers, as we draw near to you and you draw near to us, that we would begin to test and to see what is your good and pleasing will and that the supernatural power of the gospel would take root here at Redeemer Brenham and in our community and churches around to bring transformation in an ongoing way that spills over into our state, our nation, and our world. We ask in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.